You're listening to Strange by Nature, your guide to the strange, weird, unbelievable, and improbable wonders of the natural world. Thanks for being here today. I am Kirk Mona, and I am joined today by Rachel Ginza and Victoria Thompson. We are all professional naturalists who together have scoured the world for weird and wonderful wonders just to please your mammalian brain's desire for novelty. Isn't that nice? Let's do this. Well, everybody, welcome. It is a slightly special episode. It's episode 50. Yay! <laughs> A episodes. meaningless number. <laughs> I mean, it's halfway to 100. Our yeah, slavish devotion to base number. 10. Yeah. Just no. think, if we, if we only had eight fingers uh, you know, on our hands instead of 10, mm-hmm. would 50 be a big... Would that even be a thing? I mean, no. depending who you talk Probably to, not. technically we do have eight fingers. Do not get me started on the thumbnail. <laughs> no. Do not. <laughs> That's why I said, depend who you talk to. So, but anyway, we're not really doing anything special for episode 50. We are, we have something planned for when we've been on the air for a year, which will be a few episodes Mm -hmm. from now. Uh, So stay tuned, but this is just going to be a a regular episode. I'm starting. If if you guys want to make it special, the listeners could go to patreon.com slash strange by nature and become patrons. That would be a special gift to us on, on 50 episodes. If you're enjoying yeah. what you're hearing and want to support it, we would love that. But, and if there's uh, a certain number of dollars that matches up with that, that you feel like... No. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> wow, 50000 is kind of a lot, Victoria. I don't know what you're asking them to do. They're like, 50 cents. Done. <laughs> uh, no, we do, we do appreciate uh, everyone who, who listens. And uh, thanks for being Truly. along for the ride. And... and, and uh, Coming with us on this journey thus far, we got a whole lot more to do. Yeah. I think, Victoria, you're starting us off this week with uh, something. More goods. I am starting us off this week. Uh, and I want to start out with a question for you two. Ooh, I love tell questions. Tell me what you know about, tell me what you know about bees. I know a lot about bees. What kind <laughs> I of know bees? you know a lot about bees. You, you did an episode about bees. tell you what bees. I know about bees? Just like the general, the highlights of bees. What do they do? Uh, what kind of bees? How many do you have? So, like... Just uh, give, these are members like, of the order Hymenoptera. Yeah, uh, you, or maybe you, maybe the better way to phrase this is: <laughs> what, do you, what do you think bees? most people would say about bees? Oh, they oh they they're yellow and black and they sting you. Yes. Okay. They what make else? honey. And they make honey. They make honey. Do they do uh, anything important? Pollinate. They uh, po- oh, they're, they're pollinators. Uh-huh. Things yeah. like that. Um, yeah. By the way, the making honey thing, I understand. It's honeybee propaganda. I appreciate that. But at the same time, most bees do not make honey. Is that where you're going with this? Yes. Not exactly. Okay. Oh. Uh, all of what you said is true. Uh, I am going to tell you, though, about a type of bee that does things a little differently. Mm-hmm. Here is a hint. Is it? Okay. Do you not remember my topic from last week? Yes. About the carnivorous plant. Yes, it's a carnivorous yeah, yeah. plant. Scientists were, Are you talking so, about a carnivorous bee? Yes. Oh, okay. All right. I am taking so it's this not a to the bee world. It's vulture bees. What? Oh, oh my gosh. I've never All heard right. of vulture I'm bees. I'm ready. I'm, I'm ready. I'm here. I'm ready. I'm wearing yellow. I'm so ready. 
<laughs> I knew you would be into this, Rachel. I love um, bees. Yes, you do. <laughs> Vulture bees, uh, they belong to three or possibly four species of social bees in the genus Trigona. And okay, all of okay. them are found in South America. They are part of a much larger group of stingless bees. And like other bees, they do drink nectar and sweet fruit juice and like plant stem juices and things like that. Uh, okay. But whereas most bees get their protein from pollen, right. vulture, right. Bees, yep. vulture bees exclusively eat meat for their protein. Yes. What? Wait, wait, yes. wait, you say meat. What kind of meat? They're vulture. Are we? Wait. Steak? Whoa. They're or... vulture bees. Are they carrion like eaters? As their name suggests, they like rotting flesh. Yes. Yes. This is amazing. <laughs> what a valuable ecological service bees do for us. Oh, Add one more to the list. I love bees. <laughs> this is so cool. Because, like, not only are they, like, pollinating, but half the time by accident, like, helping make food or not even make food for us that's not how that works but like helping the fly that's a offset actually i'm not going to get into it i will talk about it all day yeah these are actually non-pollinating bees because they don't visit flowers for nectar they get like fruit juice they tap plant stems and stuff like that okay but But um, bees in general do that but like vulture bees now also eat dead things is so cool Absolutely. I don't, I don't know if you're going to get through this without Rachel just completely losing her mind. <laughs> try. Do we'll your best. Do our best. Um, so they, they completely lack the pollen-carrying structures that most bees have. Okay. So they are okay. completely reliant on meat. Um, and this, these type of bees have been known to Western science for a couple of centuries, but their, uh, their flesh foraging behavior was only observed by scientists about 40 years ago. So relatively recently. Flesh foraging. Uh, yes. <laughs> what a... Possible episode title. Okay, flesh go on. Foraging. So oh interestingly, God. they also do produce honey. Uh, like a lot huh. of the stingless oh. bees produce honey. Um, from Does the nectar like they meat? eat. Uh, I have not tried any. Rotting meat. It's from the, it's, it's from the nectar, but I got to imagine mm-hmm. it's in a, like a, a stomach... Well, I mean, how honey rotting flesh. One source I said said it had a kind of intense, spicy sort of flavor. So make of that what you will. Okay, that might just be from the plants that they're gathering yeah. nectar from. Well, okay, but it it bodes the question: Do they have separate stomachs? Because generally speaking, if they mm. make honey, they have like a honey type stomach that in they right. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, so, I I did that question did pass through my mind. I didn't dig far enough to be able to find out the answer to that. But I'm going to touch on the stomach issue, if you'll Excellent. Okay. bear Keep with going. me. Yeah. Touch away. <laughs> Thanks. Um, okay. So <laughs> what they do is they visit a carcass, uh, and they, they often enter through the eyes, much like maggots do. Good Gross. entry point. Yeah. yeah. Pretty standard. And they have big teeth on their mandibles that they use to scrape off the what? flesh. What? Like true teeth? And do not like? No, not true teeth, but like serrations you know okay yeah yeah uh not like buck teeth like no a beaver that'd be weird <laughs> um they can also defend their carcasses from other insects such as flies and ants that want to use it huh. and they can bite uh people for example even though they are singlish they so they do defend themselves um oh, by biting cool okay yeah biting bees 
There are Sweet. a couple of competing hypotheses about how the bees process the meat. So one is that they carry actual pieces of the meat back to their hive and then um, mix them with honey and keep them in a special storage pot for a couple of weeks to mature. Wow. And then Probably they... some enzymes breaking stuff down in there as well. Then. Undoubtedly. Yeah. Um, which, and then they would through. feed the mixture to the larvae. Because uh, they live, when I said social bees before, that, that means they live in a mm -hmm. hive and have a queen and all that yeah. kind of stuff, yes. um, which not all bees do. Uh, the other hypothesis is that they use some kind of enzyme uh, like in their saliva to partially dissolve the flesh before they swallow it and then carry it back in a special stomach uh, mm -hmm. and regurgitate it into the same little storage pots that I mentioned before. So they have found the storage pot. Yes, and these okay. pots so the are debate kept. Is just whether they're bringing it back with like mouth enzymes or not. Is yeah. Kind of a... Yes, okay. as far as I can tell. Um, I'm so... really simplifying here. But... <laughs> yeah, basically. Uh, so these little pots are kept separate in the hive from the honey. <laughs> so the honey is theoretically not tainted by the rotten meat, um, and it can oh. it can be collected by humans, although it's not. Terribly abundant compared to like honeybees. Yeah. Not, why would you want to? Oh, 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 the honey can be collected. The I honey think the rotted meat no. can be collected. I'm going, no. I mean, you could, no, I guess. Could tell you. Why? The honey. Yes. The honey. Okay, the honey. Good clarification. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. So, the reason I even heard about vulture bees, because I had not heard of them before, was. Uh, I saw a news item about a paper that was recently published that looked at vulture bees' microbiomes and Ooh. compared them to other closely related bees that live in the same area. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So this paper is called, Why Did the Bee Eat the Chicken? Symbiont Gain, Loss, and Retention in the Vulture Bee Microbiome. Uh, that is... It's can you explain for listeners who don't know what a microbiome is? Yes. Like, and just what that is real quick? Yes. So basically, <clears throat> your body, a bee's body, any animal's body, has trillions of bacteria and other microorganisms, viruses, fungi, that live in it and are symbi have a symbiotic relationship. So like you've probably heard about your gut bacteria. Your, uh, gut, your gut bacteria is part of your yeah. microbiome. Mm -hmm. And bees have a microbiome in their gut also. So what this paper, what these researchers were doing, led by uh, Laura Figueroa of the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, they, they captured these bees by setting out bait traps of chicken. <laughs> by the way, what an excellent uh, scientific article uh, title. It's beautiful. Absolutely. Why the, That's why. Oh, can, so good. Uh, I, can, I can already smell it. Go on. <laughs> yeah, rotten chicken is special. Oh. Um, but, uh, yeah, so they, they set out these traps and, and then they would capture the different kinds of bees, including the vulture bees, and, uh, you know, analyze their gut bacteria. And I guess they did uh, DNA analysis to figure out what it was. Mm -hmm. And they got some really interesting results. So, first of all, uh, the guts of the vulture bees are highly acidic Good. due to the... So our, our stomachs are acidic because we make hydrochloric right. acid from cells in our body, but bees are acidic because they have bacteria called lactobacillus, which create lactic acid. 
Um, and lactobacillus okay. also is the same genus of bacteria that people use to make things like yogurt and sauerkraut. Right, I'll say that sounds very familiar. Okay. okay. Yeah. Um, the other bees, non-vulture bees, did not have lactobacillic or acidic guts. And all the non-carnivorous bees all pretty much had the same few species of symbiotic bacteria in their guts. But the vulture bees had a couple of those, but then a whole bunch of other bacteria, which were very similar to those found in other types of carrion eaters, like vultures and hyenas. Okay, so even yeah. though they're like completely different um, areas of the animal kingdom, they, ha- they wind up having pretty similar uh, environments in their stomachs and guts. The, That's so cool. The question cool. that comes to my mind uh, immediately is, are those bacteria also found naturally uh, like on the skin of animals or in the flesh of animals so that the animals that are eating them naturally, eating let's say chicken flesh, mm-hmm. naturally pick those up as a way to help digest it because they're already on that? That would explain how they got them. But I think that may be part of it. I'm not totally certain on that point. So it would have to be... research yeah. topic. Oh, yeah. Huh. Um, but at any rate, these symbiotic bacteria let the, ease, the, let the bees eat the rotting flesh without getting sick the way that you or I would. And it's also what lets hyenas and vultures and animals like that do it. I will avoid the raw chicken. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, Fair enough. uh, So that's, that's most of what I have to say, except that uh, just to wrap things up, an interesting point that the authors made in their paper was that bees can actually be considered vegetarian wasps. So really, I was wondering if these are wasps. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Say that again. Bees. Bees evolve from wasps. Okay. So, Huh. Bees could be considered okay. uh, wasps that adapted to a an herbivorous diet. So right. kind of like how all squares are rectangles, but not all rectangles are squares. Right, right, right. Yeah. So okay. these, so this is basically like some bees who have gone back to their old wasp-like ways. Exactly. Vulture bees have kind of gone back to their roots in, in some way of considering it. Interesting. Huh. Yeah. Or That's so cool. They never leave. <laughs> That's so cool. Like, oh my gosh, my brain. I, I, oh, bees are amazing, and they don't get enough credit, and they do. But most people only think about the honeybees. But there are so many other kinds of bees. Oh yeah. Yes, there oh, are. So so many. A great topic for another day. Yes. yes. Thank you, Victoria. You're welcome. When we come back from the break, we'll have Kirk with something fresh. Hopefully. It'll be rotten and ready to be eaten by bees. Gross. (laughs) Kirk here with a quick note. If you're enjoying the show, be sure to subscribe and leave a five-star review. It helps other lovers of The Strange find our show. You can also find and follow us on social media. Search for Strange by Nature Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or come visit us at strangebynaturepodcast.com. We'll see you there. Now, back to the show. This week, I'm headed back to Indonesia, because when I talked about Krakatoa uh, several episodes ago, I mentioned that it wasn't actually the biggest eruption right. in recorded right. history. Mm-hmm. So 
might have been the loudest. That, You're talking that about that is my my topic for today. Oh. We're talking about the big one. What I don't know what the big one is, but I, I'm, I'm excited. One? Well, we're gonna find out. So, um, the volcano eruption uh, in question we're talking about is is, in all fairness, not probably the largest volcano ever to have erupted. So, Victoria, you mentioned super volcanoes mm-hmm. a number of episodes back, and Yellowstone is the example most people are familiar with, and I think you talked about as well. And these supervolcanoes have erupted in the past, but almost all of them predate human beings even existing. Right, <laughs> it was like right. millions and millions of years ago. We are but uh, a blip. Only been, there's yes. only been one, what I would call sort of a modern supervolcano, which was in New Zealand, and that was around 27,000 years ago. And so while there certainly were humans around at the time, there's mm-hmm. not really any like surviving, like even an oral tradition or anything yeah. of... Um, of, of that eruption. So uh, while there have been eruptions larger th- than the one I'm going to talk about today, we only know about them from like what they left behind. Mm-hmm. And I want to talk about uh, one that was actually witnessed and recorded in, in more sort of modern times. So as uh, Victoria pointed out, a supervolcano was given a, a rating of 8 on the VEI scale. That's the Volcanic Explosivity Index. And as a quick refresher... The scale is logarithmic, meaning every increase in the number is actually 10 times more explosive. So 8 is as high as the scale goes. Krakatoa, which I talked about before, uh, which was just amazingly destructive and super explosive, it was only ranked as a VE6, or what's sometimes called a colossal explosion. Today, we're going to talk about a super colossal uh, eruption that ranked a VEI7. Oh, no. You already know, if you're paying attention, that what I'm about to talk about is 10 times more explosive than Krakatoa. Oh, no. (laughs) That's a lot of explosiveness. That is true. This week, I'm talking about the eruption of Mount Tambora. Oh, I have heard of Mount Tambora. Yes. So, Mount Tambora is located on the island of uh, Sambawa uh, in Indonesia, for those not familiar with Indonesia and the area, uh, if you can picture Australia, just north of Australia, there's like a thin line of islands, mm-hmm. and that marks sort of the start of Indonesia there. Uh, Sumbawa is one of those islands. Okay. This is also the same region that Victoria talked about when she did a story about Wallace's line back just 10 episodes ago in uh-huh. episode 40. Go check, <laughs> check it out if you haven't heard that. So uh, Krakatoa is also part of that same chain of islands. So okay. we're talking about a fairly geologically active area, to be clear. Sounds like it, yeah. have said, if we're going to have another one of these major, major eruptions, it's going to be in Indonesia. So yeah. okay. keep that in mind. Makes sense. Uh, so b- both these volcanoes are fueled by the same subduction zone. Now, back in 1812, the long-dormant Mount Tambora began to awaken. Sorry, what year so did you say? 1812. 1812, okay. I thought so you was, said 1910, and I was confused. Oh, <laughs> that would be wrong. Uh, 1812, <laughs> so this is, this is before Krakatoa. And uh, Mount Tambora um, had certainly erupted in the past. I mean, in fact, it's a stratovolcano meaning it's like a cone-shaped mountain that is built up by many stratified layers from multiple eruptions. So okay. clearly there had been lots of eruptions there before. Uh, the previous eruptions had built the mountain up to reach 14,100 feet tall. <laughs> now that's... <laughs> that's fine. That's big. 
Yeah. It was the biggest uh, mountain in all of Indonesia. Uh, and it's, it's not ridiculously huge. There's certainly higher mountains in the world. But when you stop to think of it, this is a 14,000-foot-high pile of debris from previous eruptions. Yeah. Okay, now <laughs> it starts to feel like yeah. this isn't just a mountain that was pushed up because of, you know, plate tectonics. This is, this is a 14,000-foot-high pile of debris from previous eruptions. So pretty impressive. For reference, this is about Ooh. 500 feet taller than Mauna Loa on Hawaii. Uh, so we're talking pretty good size. Okay. Yeah. Although Mauna Loa... From sea level? Uh, no, no, no. Th- thanks for bringing that up. Not the Mauna Loa from sea level, okay. not from the ocean floor. Which that's all. That's a whole other. That's another episode. episode too. Yeah. yeah. Now, um, all those eruptions that built up the volcano had also drained the magma chamber that lies beneath, and that was feeding the eruption. So, it took centuries to very slowly refill. And so, for as long as people could remember, the mountain had been fairly quiet. And from what I could gather, uh, it wasn't just that the magma chamber was refilling that caused the enormous explosion that was to come. Uh, the magma that had remained had been cooling for centuries and essentially created like a pressure cooker type situation mm-hmm. as it started to sort of stratify and, and different um, like types of rock were starting to separate out in that cooling magma and it kind of sealed stuff up and, and started, the, started the pressure cooking. Oh, no. And in 18... 18- In 1812, clouds began to appear around the volcano, signaling that it was awakening. Now, that's not when the big explosion and eruption happened. That's just when the volcano, people started to note that it was coming back. Okay. So three years after those first recorded signs, the volcano uh, awakening, a major eruption began on April 5th, 1815. Explosions could be heard as far away as 780 miles, uh, which was in Mm. Java. Okay. And that was during this initial phase. Not as far as Krakatoa was heard, but 780 miles is a really long ways away. So those must have been some uh, That's really major still really loud. explosions. <laughs> yeah. And uh, we don't have any firsthand accounts from the island, but we do know that ash began to fall on the, the 6th of April in East Java, which, remember, is 780 miles away. Yeah. So oh, something, no. Something massive was going on already. Uh, Rumbles and explosions like thunder could be heard for the next four days. And on April 10th, things really started to intensify. Detonations like the sound of cannon fire could be heard 1,600 miles away now in Sumatra. Wow. And there were reports now from closer in of what was happening. Uh, The volcano was erupting from three separate spots. Oh, no. On the volcano. And as the day went on, those merged into one massive column of ash and fire, reaching 44 kilometers in height. For those who are not using the metric system, that is 27 miles high into the sky. Uh, That's 10 times the height of the mountain itself. So, yeah. Wow. Really, really high. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, now, here's the problem. When that happens, you have this giant column going up in the air. Eventually, it can collapse and start yeah. coming back down. And uh, it formed a pyroclastic flow. And a pyroclastic flow is a mix of ash, pumice, boulders, and toxic and extremely hot volcanic gashes that travel around along the ground at speeds up to 430 miles an hour. 
No. Which, completely devastating. Yeah. And, and keep in mind, it's also like over a thousand degrees uh, yeah. centigrade. So about 1800 Fahrenheit. Um, sometimes they can move slower, like maybe 60 miles or so, but this was go miles an hour. This is going like uh, 430 miles an hour is how fast they can go. Utter devastation uh, at that point. Gone. Yeah, pyroclastic flows gone. are considered one of the most deadly parts of a volcanic eruption. Yes. It spread down mm-hmm. all sides of the volcano, and it, it wiped out at this point the village of Tambora. So the flows uh, reached, we know, 12 miles away from the volcano. And the eruption continued for days and days and days. The cloud of ash <clears throat> created pitch darkness during the middle of the day, 370 Whoa. miles away. Wow. So three, it was, they reported that it was pitch dark for two solid days Whoa. Uh, when this eruption was going on. That's when nuts. all was said and done, the mountain had been reduced in height uh, from that 14,100 feet to 9,354 feet, having lost 4,700 feet in height. Oh, my and, God. It's a uh, lot of rock. Yeah, so, some calculations have shown that the you know this there's actually magma coming up from out of the earth. This volcano converted 150 gigatons of magma into ash, <laughs> pumice, and other ejecta. Oh wow! <laughs> That's not a number that has any meaning to me because it's so large that it doesn't really uh, mean uh, anything. Yeah. Oh my. So the energy release uh, was equivalent to. 33 billion tons of TNT. Uh, I made the comparison to the the little boy atomic blast last time, so I'll do that again. Uh, That is equivalent to 2.2 million atomic bombs going off. Absolutely not. No, thank you. Yeah. Uh, This was... That's insane. This was big. Uh, So not surprisingly, there was quite a death toll. Uh, Most estimates put the death toll around 70,000 people. Uh, but some some numbers are are much higher than that. Some are lower. Uh, it's it understandably a little hard to, to to say. Also, what do you count in that? From people mm-hmm. who died just because their village got wiped out, or are you talking about people who died from tsunamis? People who died from um, just the the ash, the conditions, the ash and whatnot. Um, one of the interesting effects of this uh, eruption is that it plunged the earth into what's called a volcanic winter. Yeah. In much of the northern hemisphere, uh, where there was a lot of writing about this, there was essentially no summer in the year 1816. There are multiple records of snow falling in June in in North America, which is just just destroying crops, uh, not enough light for crops to grow, and it being cold. This was a time of Lord Byron, uh, and so uh, he actually wrote a poem called Darkness. And yeah. the poem says, I had a dream, which was not at all a dream. The bright sun was extinguished and the stars did wander darkling in the internal space, rayless and pathless and the icy earth swung blind and blackening in the moonless air. Morn came and went and came and brought no day. And this is thought to be in reference to this this year when basically there was just so much ash in the atmosphere that uh, it was like the sun didn't come out and they didn't have summer. There were crop failures around the world, which led to famine and death. So it is really impossible to know how many people around the world actually 
you know, like starved due to crop failure or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there, there was, this was during the Napoleonic Wars. And yeah. so like there was, that actually fueled some of the Napoleonic Wars. I mean, it, War of it's impossible. To, yeah, it's impossible to really put an uh, actual number uh, to the, the disease and death that was caused by this eruption and some other ones that happened right around the same time. Uh, but the number is likely astronomically far above uh, that 70,000 number. So personally, I hope we never see a VE7 or VEI7 eruption in our lifetime. As exciting as it would be to study that in modern times, right. uh, the not. aftermath is not good. No. So I'm going to say that's, no thank you. We have enough problems already. We do indeed, uh, even though it might cool the Earth slightly, which we could use these days. We, but, yeah, um, but I don't think that's how we, not want, the way it we want to go. No. Yeah. No. So that is the, uh, the story of Mount Tambora and uh, the largest ever eruption in uh, recorded human history. I mean, you know. Thank you. We, thanks. Yeah, right. We talk about how you know. nature is strange and how we've talked also about just the different ingenuity and the strength of uh, humans uh, in different ways. Like you talked about the atomic bomb and like that for Mm -hmm. modern human history, it's very much like it was a devastating thing to happen. And, and we see that as like the ultimate destructive thing. Exactly. And then you compare it nothing. nothing. And that's just the planet doing its thing. Yeah. Insane. Makes you feel kind of small. Oh, crazy. Thanks. Well, everyone can ponder that for just a moment. <laughs> and uh, I need to. Yeah, and when we come back, Rachel, compose yourself because you're up next. Okie doke. <laughs> All right, everyone. Uh, welcome back. Uh, as I talked about last week, uh, I'm doing my first ever two-parter, and That's you all right. know yes. what yeah. I'm talking about this week. We've already talked about turtles breathing through their butts. Exactly. Now anaerobic we're respiration. Anaerobic respiration, which all is right. a little bit different. So we talked last week about cloacal respiration and how that works. But a big problem, which we also talked about, is what can happen when everything in the pond or the lake is using that dissolved oxygen. Mm -hmm. But the pond is frozen, so there's not any new oxygen coming in because there is a layer of ice, so the dissolved oxygen level slowly dwindles to nothing. What do turtles do? Like uh, winter fish kills and things like that, too. Exactly. So some turtles. Uh, have actually found a way around it. Um, Like snapping and painting turtles, which are pretty common around where we are. Um, They can't do it for very long. Like they can, they can do anaerobic respiration for about a hundred days. And after that, it becomes pretty long. It's decently long, but if they go over that, it becomes extraordinarily dangerous for them. And we're going to talk about it. So So it's like an end of the winter strategy here. Yes, very much. So when I talk about respiration, I'm not just talking about like breathing in and out. Um, I am talking about like cellular respiration levels uh, where they are utilizing, um, they're creating energy by using the dissolved oxygen 
in the water and exchanging it and going through some chemical processes in their cells and in their body to create energy so they can do tasks. It's something our bodies as endotherms do all of the time. Using glucose. Using glucose. But oxygen is generally a very important part of that process and is necessary in order to do it. Yes. Anaerobic respiration is a way for them or way for animals to go through and create the energy and still be using that glucose, but they're not using oxygen. That's why it's called right. anaerobic. Which is, which is wild. Yeah. It's Tell us about crazy. It. So in, uh, when you are using oxygen, electrons of your cells and of the process itself are shuffled along an electron transport chain. And the final acceptor, the electron acceptor is oxygen okay it's molecular oxygen is super high energy it's the oxidizing agent and it's just a great electron acceptor that's why we use it that's why Mm -hmm. we use it in anaerobic uh, uh, respiration what happens is they use either uh, nitrate so NO3 um or they use sulfate or sulfur uh, as electronics uh, acceptors at the very end. So this just ends up meaning that they go through the respiration process. And as they go through that respiration process to create ATP or and um, from ADP, which are the energy uh, molecules that our body uses in our metabolism, it produces the energy, but they end up with, uh, how do they end up with something that they don't necessarily want, which is lactic acid. Yes. Ah, okay. I was going to ask what the trade-off was here. The trade-off is it ends up with a, uh, they end up with a buildup of lactic acid. Yes. So if anyone is curious, if you do a really good like workout or if you rock climb and your muscles get really sore afterwards, it's because Mm. if, especially if you didn't stretch, it's because your muscles are, um, have a buildup of lactic acid, um, which makes you feel like you have a cramp. Your muscles are tensing up. So when turtles use this process and they do it for too long, pretty much when they come out and they're able to start respirating normally, they have to, if they come out of it, they can't just use dissolved oxygen. They need to be able to actually use their lungs Mm -hmm. because they're one big old muscle cramp pretty much. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Sounds sounds terrible. Um, So, it's super important when it comes to being able to survive the winters. Um, generally speaking, if you're in a wetland or whatever, uh, the turtles will be using some, uh, some sulfur as well, uh, just because that's what's there as an electronic uh, acceptor. Um, it causes them to be able to uh, be able to obviously survive. But uh, another drawback to this particular um, method of being able to survive and be able to have energy to continue on, um, Mm -hmm. they also, turtles 
skeletons and their shells will actually create a carbonate buffer to help neutralize the lactic acid buildup. Oh, wow. So it's not as deadly, but that also means their shells and their their skeletons just end up just a little bit thinner. It's not as sure, sure. strong. You're converting some of that calcium in the, sh- in the, in the shells and the bones into that yeah. buffer. Just so that way they're not getting a ton of buildup of that lactic acid. Because mm-hmm. if they get a lot of it, it ends up, um, I mean, it can kill them. Yeah. Um, it just it strikes me that there's, there's so many different methods animals use to survive the winter. Mm-hmm. They're all amazing, and they're all also so risky. They're very risky. Yes. Like, if those turtles do not bask in the sunlight and start increasing their metabolic rate. That's why it's so important those early days of spring when you see all those turtles out and about on um, like rocks and sunning themselves and getting Mm -hmm. that. And they're increasing their metabolic rate. And by doing so, they're able to rid their body of that lactic acid and all of the acidic byproducts of their anaerobic respiration that they had to use towards the end of winter which is nuts. Um, I was reading this really interesting paper. Um, it was in the journey. Uh, it was in the journal of physiology. It's called hibernating without oxygen, physiological adaptations of the painted turtle. Um, the author is Donald C. Jackson. And it was published in 2002. And it was really interesting to read because it really goes in depth about um, the metabolic uh, conditions of the turtle and compared to like endotherms like us and the differences and what happens when it, uh, when turtles specifically painted turtles start uh, using anaerobic respiration. Um, one, one thing that I thought was amazing is they, uh, we talked about it a little bit. I feel like I talked about it is that their metabolic uh their metabolism goes down in the winter because right. as it goes down, the it, it has to go down because they're not getting an, a, enough energy, enough heat to be able to use their normal processes. But it's central to their ability to um, tolerate low oxygen levels in lakes and ponds and things. Mm-hmm. Um, and to give you a little bit of a number for it, um, as compared to a mammal of similar size of uh, like a painted turtle. So say like a, like a muskrat. Okay. Sure. An ectothermic uh, painted turtle, it's energy metabolism is only 10 or 20% of like a muskrat. Yeah. Uh, which is That's not much. I mean, like, when you don't have to keep your body that warm. Right. Yeah. Well, this is much energy. Yeah. This is at the same body temperature. When they're at the oh. same temperature, their energy mm. metabolism is only 10 to 20 percent. Um, oh and my, at lower at temperatures, it's crazy. And as the temperature drops, the turtle's metabolism will continue to fall. Even lower. Uh, Wait, oh, are we talking about body bottom. temperature or are we talking about external temperature? Because well, the, um, the muskrat's going to be at the same body temperature the all the time. Thing. That's true. I, I'm talking about the painted turtle, uh-huh. so like a, a reptile. So it would be the internal temperature for the most part, but it generally correlates with the outside temperature. Sure, for a painted turtle, sense. but not for a muskrat. 
Yes. Yeah. Not for muskrat. Muskrat is just there for comparison's sake. Okay. Um, because its temperature doesn't yeah change. It's so fascinating these different adaptations because you know people and mammals and other animals can can do anaerobic respiration too in their cells, but for very short periods yeah. of time. Like you might use it if you're sprinting. You kind of alluded to that, Rachel, with the with the muscle right. cramping that right. you mentioned. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, for, for the turtles, it's a months long survival strategy. hundred days. <laughs> it's nuts. Brutal. But yeah, I just wanted to touch on that and finish up about anaerobic respiration and how turtles use it. It's crazy. Super, super dangerous, but it's a way for them to get through. So awesome. Yeah. That's what I have for you this week. Thanks for bringing us on this journey. Anytime. Uh, thank you all for joining us we'll this week. See really you next week. Bye bye. Thanks everyone for listening to today's show. Be sure to subscribe. New episodes drop every Wednesday, and we love sharing this strange world with all of our listeners. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five star review, that would be great. It lets other lovers of the strange discover the show. You can reach out to us on social media by searching for Strange by Nature Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can send us an email as well. Our address is contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. If you want more information about the show, you can also check out our website, which is strangebynaturepodcast.com. Until next week, get outside, stay curious, and embrace the strange.